when I open up my mouth to pray, I must be conscious of the reality that I'm praying to the transcendent God. God is not our advisor. He's not our consultant. He is not our banker. He is the God of the universe. He's totally other. And this ought to bring hope when we pray. Welcome to Living a Legacy with Bible teacher and author, Dr. Crawford Loretz. When I mention the word prayer, what is your immediate thought as it relates to you? Well, you might think, I don't do enough of it, or that's for really dedicated Christians. Or maybe you feel extreme gratitude because you've seen God answer prayer in extraordinary ways. Well, wherever you fall in that continuum, I think we can admit that for many believers, prayer is one of our most neglected resources. We're going to take a look at that today as Crawford takes us to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Please join us. The messages we share here on Living a Legacy come from Crawford's years as senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church of Roswell, Georgia. Now in retirement, Crawford heads an organization called Beyond Our Generation, a ministry leadership mentoring program. He's authored several books, and among them, Your Marriage Today and Tomorrow, which is co-authored by Crawford's wife, Karen, Unshaken, and Leadership as an Identity. Well, let's get right to our study. Again, our text is Matthew chapter 6. Here's Crawford Loretz with the message, Lord, Teach Me How to Pray, here on Living a Legacy. You know, prayer is the most difficult thing we can do. It's hard. I don't know of any believer that, that has not struggled with prayer in one degree or another. Uh, we're easily distracted. You know, it's, it's hard, even though we have all the, the, the tools and this kind of thing and prayer lists and prayer journals and, and this kind of thing. Uh, staying focused and, and praying, it's just so very difficult. And I think there's some reasons for that. Uh, obviously, one of the biggest reasons for that is spiritual warfare. The devil doesn't like it when people are crying out to God because when we're on our knees, that's when we're standing the tallest. And, uh, and so he doesn't care t- too much for that. Uh, and some of it just has to do with, the, you know, uh, uh, we just don't always have the right categories in our heads when we pray. Is there an attitude and approach to prayer that is more meaningful and purposeful? You know, we, we talk an awful lot about what prayer is, and we talk an awful lot about elements to prayer, But is there an attitude, is there an approach to prayer, a mindset about prayer that that is more effective and and, 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 and meaningful and purposeful? And the answer is clearly yes. And that's what Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 is all about. Jesus is giving to us a pattern for praying. Now, it's been called the Lord's Prayer. Technically, it's not the Lord's Prayer. It should probably be called the Disciples' Prayer. Because Jesus is not saying that we're to to, to pray this prayer repetitiously. He's not saying that we should use exactly all these words. But as you read the prayer, you'll discover that there are aspects or, or, or an attitude of prayer that he's talking about. And I want to submit to you that these four aspects of prayer represent the categories by and through which all prayer is to be prayed. In fact, this prayer is given, interestingly enough, in the context of rebuking people for repetitiously praying. I mean, look here, pick up the context in verse 7. 
Matthew 6, verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, you know, he says, okay, don't, don't, don't pray these untethered prayers. They sort of rote regurgitate things. Don't pray these words, these empty words, thinking somehow or another that you're impressing God or impressing people or that it's kind of like a, a degenerated to a rabbit's foot kind of thing. So what Jesus is talking about here, he's saying it's not the repetition, but it's the condition of your heart. So, and then he goes on to give what I see as four aspects of effective prayer. First, we pray to a person, that's verse 9. Secondly, we pray for his plan, that's verse 10. Thirdly, we pray for his provision, verses 11 and 12. And then fourthly, we pray for his protection. That's verse 13. Those are the aspects, arenas, if you will, context, and there's a lot of stuff that can be put underneath those things. But he begins with the beginning. He begins by going vertical. Who are we addressing when we pray? Who are we talking to when we pray? Begins with the person that we're praying to. Notice, and I want to take this line by line. He says, uh, pray then like this. Our Father... In heaven, hallowed be your name. Who are we talking to? Our Father begins with the pronoun our. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think what Jesus is hitting at is that, that, that prayer and dependence upon God is a universal posture of every follower of Jesus Christ. It is never okay for anyone who names the name of Jesus not to depend upon God the Father. So when we come to him, we come to him as a community of people who are marked by dependence. Then the expression, who's in heaven. I think what Jesus is hinting back at, that, uh, at is that when we pray, we recognize his infinite greatness, and I'm going to use a 10-cent word, and transcendence. He cannot be contained. Heaven represents a place of boundless supply. It represents the place of all power and all riches and all that we have. God is not our advisor. He is not our consultant. He is not our banker. He is the God of the universe. He's totally other. And this ought to bring hope when we pray. Trust me, trust me, trust me. You don't want a God like you. I don't want one like me. He is magnificent. And so Jesus begins by saying, no, 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 don't, 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 don't begin by focusing on your need. Focus on the one who has no need. And then he says, hallowed be your name. The expression hallowed is an old English word. It, it, uh, it, it actually, it's a phrase could have been translated, let your name be treated with reverence. With reverence. Sometimes I think we trip a little bit into disrespect or disregard. We become a little pedestrian with him 
Because he gives us access doesn't change his holiness. Doesn't give us the right to have attitudes with him. Doesn't give us the right to be disrespectful toward him. No, we honor him as holy. His name is to be treated with reverence and respect. Hallowed be your name. So that very first observation wrapped up in verse 9 is that we're praying to a sovereign God who's in control, who doesn't guess about anything, and who is holy. The second aspect of this prayer is that we pray for his plan. We pray to a person, God, then secondly, we pray for his plan. And again, this is broad, and it's meant to be broad. You can plug in almost anything here. But uh, Jesus bottom lines it. He says here in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we long for. This is what we desire more than anything else. Number one, he says, we desire your kingdom to come. He has in view here, because of the immediacy of the prayer and the fact that he's telling his followers to pray this as a template for praying right now down here, I think he's talking about the immediacy of kingdom principles. Pray for the full realization of all that the kingdom means. That you're distinctively the people of God and you don't represent your own interests. But we're born to represent the interests of the kingdom. That's the reason why we're part of the body of Christ. That's the reason why we're part of the church. No, the church does not replace the millennial kingdom, but the church is to reflect the kingdom principles and kingdom values. And when this watching world wants to get a taste of what the kingdom of God looks like and, and what the rule of Christ looks like and what the transforming power of Christ looks like and what are the priorities of Christ, what does it look like and what are the priorities in heaven on earth right now, what does it look like? They should be able to look at the church, to the community of the saints of God. Your kingdom come. And part of that, I believe grammatically, the next line is an extension from that prayer for the kingdom to come and to be realized. If the kingdom is going to come and be realized in my life, if I'm going to live by these kingdom principles, then the next line says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe that's all an, uh, an extension of the kingdom enterprise. Your will be done. It's the accomplishment of what God, God wills and the deeds of those he has created as well as in what he does himself. Your will be done. Listen to me. So many of us get disappointed in our prayer life because God did not do what we ask him to do. And our presupposition is that I pray based upon what I want God to do. Now, I'm, I'm walking a little bit of a tightrope here because we are to pray about anything, about everything. We are to ask him everything. But what we miss in all this teaching on prayer, what we miss is that all of these promises are conditioned by the will of God. They're conditioned by his will. God is not obligated to answer anything that I pray that's not a part of his will. And I got to tell you, the will of God is not always uh, initially pleasant. 
There, you know, there's just this brand of Christianity that, you know, we, we keep repackaging this stuff and, and we, we feel like we gotta market Jesus and that somehow or another he needs a publicist to kind of round out his rough edges and that, you know, we've gotta, gotta brand Christianity in a way that, you know, don't be so harsh. But the truth of the matter is, you know, God, God is into accomplishing what he wants to get done and not just making Crawford comfortable. Do you want his will? Some of us will never have a walk with God that goes beyond our need for comfort and pleasure. That's as far as we're gonna go with Jesus. And yet Jesus says in his model prayer, you really wanna have prayer to touch his heart? You pray for his plan. So, the aspects of prayer Uh, these broad attitudes and categories that Jesus is speaking to here. We pray, number one, to a person. Number two, we pray for his plan. But number three, we pray for his provision. And that's found in verses 11 and 12. And I link, I link verses 11 and 12 together because there's, there's not a period, but only a comma. And I think he's talking about his provision in two ways. Number one, his provision concerning our needs. He says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. And by the way, the word daily, actually, uh, 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 the, the, the sentence could have been translated this way, uh, give us our bread for tomorrow. He said, wait a minute, you just said daily. What are you talking about tomorrow? Well, the, 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 the culture there, the idea was, at the end of the day, God has met your need. He's met your need. And as you close your eyes and you think about the next day, you cry out to him, God, When I wake up tomorrow, I trust you to meet those needs. It's it's an act of faith that each step of the way, we we are trusting God to meet our needs. We're to live in continual dependence on God. And this dependence is expressed through prayer. God, meet those needs. And here's a point that I think we need to, uh, how it applies to us. Although we plan for the future, we do not trust in our plans for the future. Although we provide for the future, we do not trust in the provision for the future. We trust in the provider for our future. It's not just talking about folks that ain't got any margin. It's not talking about folks who are doing just a hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. No, 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 no. There's a warning for all of us here. The warning here is that no, 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 no. No, no. Yeah, no, you had to plan. The Bible teaches about planning. Be good stewards of your resources. Forecast that, all of that. I think it's really good. You take a look at that. Karen and I are talking, look, looked at our little stuff here uh, this past week. Yeah, look at all that stuff, you know. Go through all that stuff. But fully understand this. Fully understand this. God can wipe all of that out. And so we, too, have got to take that step of faith and say, God, I am not to be controlled by anything in this life. I'm not to be controlled by the stuff that you give me. I hold it with an open hand, and I realize that you're the one. You're the one. You may have given me more than you've given someone else, but to whom much is given, much is required. I cannot own this stuff, and I cannot allow this stuff to own me. Give me this day. Give me this day the daily bread. And if you give me more than I need, then I need to be generous because maybe I'm the conduit by through which you're giving them their daily bread. Then we also, uh, he provides for our needs, but secondly, he provides for our sinfulness. 
That's the reason why I said there's, there's a comma and not a period here. He says, and forg- uh, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, drop this in context here. Don't just separate the lines. Who are we praying to? Praying to the sovereign God of the universe who's transcendent and holy. And when we walk into his presence, I don't care how righteous we may seem to be on a relative horizontal basis, we walk into his presence. As Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, after he has this massive vision of the transcendent holy God, what is his first response? He doesn't doesn't show God his resume. He doesn't show him his list of accomplishments. He didn't tell him now what he has to bring to the table and what he can offer him. His first response is, whoa, woe is me, for I'm sinful. To be intimate with God is to be conscious of our wickedness and sinfulness. Sin puts us in the wrong with God, and only he can cancel out our offenses and pardon them. But the most uncomfortable line, obviously, is the next line, as we also have forgiven our debtors as we forgive our debtors. Now notice it is debtors who are forgiven and not debts. It's not that you're forgiving someone for what they've done to you. You're forgiving that person because they did it to you. So you forgive your debtors. You release them. And I just have to say this here, listen to me, this is a hard pill to swallow. But some of our prayers are bouncing off the wall And some of us are not experiencing joy. There's levels of bitterness that we're wrestling with because we've not forgiven. We're angry. We're bitter. And we think we can compartmentalize that, and somehow or another we can get to the heart of God. But this text tells us that I cannot experience fullness and freedom and experience the forgiveness of God in a joyful, full way until I have forgiven. You see, these disciplines in the Christian life are not not compartmentalized. They're not separated from one another. Our wholeness and our holiness affects everything that we do. You just don't wall it off and treat it as if it's detached. He says, no. If you want God to answer your prayers, then you have to forgive. Final one is this. So, we pray to a person. We pray for his plan. We pray for his provision. But fourthly, we pray for his protection from ourselves and from Satan. Listen to what he says here. And lead us not into, into temptation. Now, obviously, God does not tempt us. God does not tempt us. James tells us no one is tempted by God. We're drawn away by our own lust. So God does not tempt us here. I, I think what he's saying here is that, that we know our own weaknesses and we pray that we will be kept far from anything that would bring us to sin. Oh, God, warn me. God, make it clear. Keep me away from those things that will be destructive in my life. I don't want to do those things. Help me, help me to hear the warning, hear, hear and see the warnings. Don't let me go down that road. 
Then he says, and, 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 and deliver us from evil. An alternative uh, translation here is, and deliver us from the evil one. Oh God, protect me from the attacks of the wicked one. Help me to be strong. So once again, you see this is a template for praying. There's a whole lot of specific things you can put down in each one of these things. You could uh, brand them yourself wherever you are. But the point of the prayer is that, look, you begin up here with God. You surrender your heart to his will, what he wants. You know, and then, 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 you, then, then you trust him to provide for you and to protect you. I to confess something to you. And I, I, have a, I have a distaste for smart-alecky people. You know what I mean? Insecure folks who use um, sarcasm to the extreme. And uh, my normal tendency when someone is smart-alecky like that or they, they, they draw conclusions and they announce them to you without, without asking questions or engaging you or giving you the privilege of explanation or whatever, my, my, my tendency is to back up and write them off. I might look at them, but I ain't hearing nothing else. And that's not a good thing. Why? Because the attitude is wrong. The attitude is wrong. We, 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 we far more press into people whose hearts and attitudes are right. And actually, that's what I think this prayer is about. I think more than anything else, it's about the attitude that prays. If I would, if I would re-outline uh, this I, and put it in attitude uh, uh, elements, I would say that there are four attitude elements here is what I want to leave you with. The first attitude is reverence. An attitude of reverence. Do we come to God demanding him, telling him what he ought to do? The second attitude is an attitude of submission. Proud people are not good prayers. Are we fighting them? It's an attitude of submission. The third attitude is an attitude of dependence. If you're not going to depend on God, then stop praying. The very act of prayer is dependence. Don't pray. If you don't want to depend on God, don't pray. But we come to him in an attitude of dependence. And then fourthly, we come to him in an attitude of neediness. Only needy people pray. If you don't have needs, don't pray. But I need them. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Crawford Loritz, our teacher here on Living a Legacy. Here again are those four aspects of prayer. We pray to a person, we pray for his plan, we pray for his provision, and then we pray for his protection. If you missed out on part of today's program, you can hear all of it on our website, livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Look for the past programs link on the left side of the page. Our weekly teaching programs are available to download for free. Look for the MP3 link on the website. Again, I'd like to emphasize how important it is to keep in touch with us. We need to know that, number one, you join us either by radio, through our website, or on the online streams. And number two, how this weekly Bible teaching impacts your walk with Christ. We're not looking for a long letter, just a couple of sentences to let us know you're there. Write to Legacy at Moody, 
www.crawfordlawyers.edu. For Dr. Crawford Loritz, I'm Bill Davis. This program is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.